Models, Episode 59, Forever Dis, with guest Lauren Boyle, hosted by Carly Busta, Daniel Keller, and Lil Internet. This is a collaborative project started in the late aughts by a group of friends who, seeing the limits of legacy media and 20th century conventions of cultural discourse, started experimenting with other forms of media, distribution, and overall disposition. In 2010, Dis launched a digital-first magazine with Nick Scholl, Patrick Sandberg, and Adrian Massey, with which listeners of New Models are very likely already familiar. For those who aren't, Dis Magazine was a media outlet that took up the emergent cultural logic of Web2 platforms and the sketchy promises of post-financial crash globalism and pushed it until the seam started to show. Dis has been and continues to be a big inspiration for new models, and we're certainly not alone in that sentiment. Name any number of art, tech, fashion-adjacent projects that have held pop cultural attention over the past decade, and it's very likely Dis is in their DNA. Telfar, Luar, Air, Vakera, Arca, Miss Claire Sullivan's Couture, half the staff of V-Files, Interview, V-Man, CR Fashion Book, the recent creative direction around Casey, Kadwalader's, Mugler, and many, many more. In 2016, Dis curated the ninth Berlin Biennale, and in 2010, curated the 10th Moving Image Biennale in Geneva. The DISC project has been carried over the past decade and a half or so by four central members, Lauren Boyle, Solomon Chase, Marco Rosso, and David Toro. Among their most recent productions is the 2021 film, Everything But The World, which had its Berlin premiere at the Schinkel Pavilion. We are totally thrilled that DISS's Lauren Boyle was able to make time to come by the New Model studio today for a conversation we've wanted to have since New Model's conception. So Lauren, thank you so much for being here and welcome to New Models. Thank you for having me, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> and Julian and Dan, um, I'm really, really thrilled to be here. I love your podcast. I listen to it religiously. <laughs> very sweet. I mean, for real, when we were first thinking about leaving our legacy media and art situations and starting something, the fact that Dis had done this 10 years earlier was a huge inspiration. And I think Joshua Citarella and others who've entered this post-Web2 media creative economy would say the same. Um, Absolutely. Right? So yeah. we have Dan joining us remotely from California. Hello. And Julian's in the studio too. Cool. Yes. So I was thinking, I mean, there's so many ways we could start off. I mean, I would love to at some point get into a little bit of the lore of this as well. But one question, I mean, so last night there was this great opening at Schinkel and, and maybe we should just start with that. Like you were last year in 2016 yeah. when you put on this incredible and hotly contested yeah. biennial. <laughs> I, think like we, I think you could really fairly say we ran away from Berlin. <laughs> oh God. Like, like we have not been back. So chased out. We were chased you out were of Berlin. Chased out. kind of were. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the problem was that there was this perception. There was this perception that was mainly made by like one or two articles, but like the hate flows so much faster and farther than anything positive. Yeah. So it just created this like mask over something that was incredible and beautiful and like, yeah, know, it was yeah. the best biennial yeah. ever. I, on, I mean, <laughs> it was we, one of the only ones that I like made any impact on me at all. Obviously, it's because, you know, I was involved in some way or another but I yeah no it, it's kind of just was very much the wrong place at the wrong I mean it was the right place at the right time to make uh, a maximum impact but as far as the backlash it was just really 
the height of that kind of moment where wild accusations flowed very freely and there wasn't much skepticism of the uh, apparatus that did that. Well, thanks for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you hit a chord, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, we were like disassociating. We're like, what's (laughs) happening? Like, you know? Um, So last night coming back, for the first time in seven years, it was amazing, actually. It was like ripping off a Band-Aid or something. Like, it felt like that. Like, okay, like, this is fine. We can come back to Berlin. We can come back and like not be like terrified. To paint a picture of the opening last night at Schinkel, there was a line out every door. Yeah. I mean, what I loved was there were a lot of faces I actually hadn't seen before. And people really turned up like at a time when a lot of the art world is like lost its luster. People really came out for this. And it wasn't just like your home team. It was like whoever was in Berlin from that home team plus a whole other generation of people. Yeah. But Gen X was conspicuously absent, which was interesting. It was interesting. (laughs) So a question that Julian had, which maybe is a nice way to frame this conversation is, this is neither cynical nor sarcastic nor Mm self-serious. So what is it? What words would you ascribe? Oh my gosh. Okay, for the longest time, people called us ironic, which was the most annoying <laughs> yeah. thing. And I was like, well, you really didn't get it. Yeah. You know, it's fine. <laughs> One of the big things for us is like, we are collaborative. Yeah. And we collaborate beyond even like the caretakers of DIS, like the primary caretakers, like very much about like co-creation. Right. So I don't know, in that way, I think it's, it. there's some idealism involved in choosing every day to work in a structure like this. Because it's really, yeah, it does. It's really not about individual personas. Like they're really erased. I mean, it's like that Bernadette Corporation film, Get Ready Yourself, was taken to heart. The individual subjectivity that powered Web 2 has been evacuated. Or it's like you were Dark Forest before Dark Forest was coined Mm -hmm. as Dark Forest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because it's like I keep seeing these things about like, oh, like we are living in like a a culture with no alternative or no subcultures and things like that. And I'm like, that was like exactly the point we were making in 2010. Yeah, I guess every generation feels exactly like that, right? Like we're still talking about the same things probably as 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I think every generation feels the same way, but it was exceptionally true because of technological shifts that happened around 2010. And, and, you know, all of Paul Scholes's stuck culture, whatever, Lindy Man theories, I think are especially true. There's even a Twitter account that I follow that's like, pop culture died in 2009, because that was sort of the last remnants of the monoculture. And if you think about people who are still big celebrities today, generally, they were famous before 2010. And that's sort of the cutoff date. Wow. Um, so I do think... There is definitely something to be said about the tropes that Dis explored being replicated over and over again because it's kind of was like the last innovative thing. I, I always think of like Dis and like Skrillex as <laughs> the last <laughs> new cultural yeah. forms. Yeah. Maybe that's not true. Uh, maybe I'm very much exposing my millennial self, but I do kind of see a lot of things still just, you know, reverberating from 2010, 2011. Yeah. Can you actually take us back to that moment when you first started having conversations about starting this? And first of all, in no world did we ever think we would still be doing this. Today. <laughs> there was just like that was not even, you know. I mean, we could have just been doing it for three months. Like, right. It was not. There was no premeditation on our part when we set out to do something, and I think that's like important. Yeah, I agree. Know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was crazy. It was like okay, so there was purple. Right. And there's Vice. Yeah. And 
like you go to their websites and all you get is like an email to email someone for like advertising and print. You know, what you I mean? get like, like it was like it was like corny old photographers. Yeah, like, yeah. But but there wasn't even like it was maybe a blog, but like not even a blog. And it was right. just sort of like everyone was just sort of like denying the internet existed entirely. Yeah. And then Tumblr was like big at that moment for sure, or it was starting to get yeah. big, I should say. But it was like pre Instagram. Yeah. You know, so media wise, I mean, it was a legacy media print world, but totally self serving. Yeah. And regurgitating the same things that had been forever. And, you know, we just basically were like, we have, we have so many friends who aren't getting seen. Yeah. And, we want to make like things that actually made sense like for online. Yeah. Know? I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, the whole thing was like this like WordPress that Nick Scholl built us and like every single thing was like custom coded. You oh, know? wow. Right. Like, so like the whole thing is, I mean, it's like, don't go to dismagazine.com. Oh my God. Good luck finding an article that works. Like, I mean, it's no, like it's, we're actually falling crisis. apart. Like, there it's has like, to be some way crisis. to like preserve yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, but even back then, I mean, it would like crash your computer because yeah. it was like, if you had like an old computer, it would like crash it because it was like, it was so densely like, every page was like different. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean. So this is like 2008. No. no, I mean, it was 2009 Nine. we started okay. talking about doing a magazine, and then I think we launched in like um, in spring 2010. And this is like ghetto gothic was starting then, and there was also Almost. a feeling about yeah. like the music industry yeah. also not working. There was yeah. like a general, there was like generally, a, and fashion sucks. Fashion sucks. Fashion sucks so bad. And like, and we were just like, we were way more interested in what was happening at Burlington Coat Factory. Like, <laughs> far more interested. <laughs> we spent so much time on Sixth Avenue. It's like, Maybe I mean, to say what Burlington Coat Factory is for <laughs> European listeners. Or I don't even know. Does it still exist anymore? I don't even know. I don't know. It's kind but of like a TJ there's Maxx. There's definitely like a flagship in New York. Sixth Avenue across from yeah, the now Be- failing yeah. Bed Bath & Beyond. Yeah, Bed Bath & Beyond. We just like would go up and down the strip and buy and return. And because like no no like PR girl worth her salt would give us anything. You know, we would just be like doing buys and returns to do fashion shoots. Like <laughs> with like towels from Bed Bath & Beyond. And like it was just like very, very playful. And yeah. like in our apartment and just a big group of friends. Right. I mean, so maybe you want to say this, Julian, you had a really interesting way of talking about this is gays. And we were talking about how like, now it seems like a lot of people, even legacy media, they're in the online, speaking from the online to the online, but there's something quite different about that disc structure. Do you want to say it? I mean, I think maybe if you put it into a question, <laughs> you can say it. But. Okay. <laughs> maybe you'll extrapolate if I don't get sure. it right. Okay. It seems like today, so much of what we consume online comes from an extremely online place, as if internet dwellers speaking to the internet. But with this, we have this feeling as if it's a network of friends in an analog space speaking to other people about how online culture is changing our human experience of everyday life. This was true in 2010 and has remained true through to the present. This never feels thirsty or resentful. It's at once open to the internet and resilient to the internet's physics. What do you think has made that possible? And if, to your mind, is that analysis even right? And then what are the principles by which this has evolved? So kind of a multi-part question. Like, one, is that positioning right? Or I've never heard that said before, but I think that's pretty true. I feel like we haven't been coerced into certain trappings of the internet through the years in a way. I mean, this is really lame, but like, I feel like it's because we are these like mostly geriatric millennials. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, we're like on that cusp where it's like we did grow up like watching like reality bites, like being like the man, like, you know, like, like, you know, like whatever. Like we had this other 
approach where it's like the younger generation, they maybe didn't idolize Gen X in the way that we might have or like, you yeah. know, like, does that make sense? Yeah, and definitely. So we weren't able to like exactly transition into like a super thirsty, like selfie world. Like that's not actually in us. And, yeah. and we're happy to talk about it, but we don't come from that. Totally. Can we didn't grow up in that environment. And even just like coming together, like it was like a true community coming together, like physically first and then networked. Right. And I feel like this and like the party scene at that time that was also emerging. Right? Oh, it was just like so much yeah. IRL contact. I always think about it, even looking at the credits of everything but the world. Is that an everything but the girl pun? Yeah. It is. <laughs> it's great. Um, you're revealing your elder millennial status <laughs> there. But, I mean, even looking at the credits for that film and then BB9, it was such high quality work, but created with so many people involved, which is such a quote unquote problem that like the internet for the past like two or three years has been scrambling trying to like autistically formalize <laughs> rules of like working as a community in DAOs or yeah. whatever else. And yet you were able to just pull off this group creation really, really effectively. And I wonder what's the secret? <laughs> Saying yes, you know, a lot. Just, yeah, let's do it. Like, you, you don't, like, don't overthink it. I think that's the secret. And just see what happens. Kind of. We're not the most precious people. Like, yeah. just like just do it and put it out there and see what happens. Move on, next thing. I mean, know? that's a really like, interesting counter distinction to Gen X, where, like, having worked in Gen X-run legacy media, there was such a feeling of, this has to be perfect, and it cannot yeah. be released. The idea of releasing something. But, like, this comes from this leaky space, like, Stuff is going to leak. It's going to drip. It's going to become fog. And there's a million other pieces of content yeah. behind this. So don't be And it's be not that important. Right. You don't, I mean, you know, it's just like more important that like you don't stop yourself yeah, from yeah, doing yeah. something that you're feeling at the time. I mean, I'm sure we made mistakes or this or that, but like I really can't even think of anything I regret. It's yeah. It's like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I mean, if I think about just all the different media that I've produced with your help, it sounds so schizophrenic. It was like, there's a spy hat, a DJ yeah. mix, a documentary film in Tahiti, a roast. Uh, so yes, it's a very much a yes and improv style of creating or something. The spy hat. I Dan, Wait, do you want to say what that is? We have to talk about that. And do you still have one? I have the prototype, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it didn't really ever work, but we tried to make a hat that was five eyes themed and it had a, a spy camera in the in the center of it, which is something that I've always wanted. And actually, I still don't have a functional one. I still think there's a market for a cool spy hat. Yeah, that's a one of one, Dan. Yeah, there's one white one and one black one. Yeah, one. Of, yeah. I remember taking that to the embroiderer. <laughs> <laughs> but are there never? Con I mean, what about when there's conflicts or somebody has an idea you don't like, or even writing the film with a writer's room? I mean, how do you cut everything yeah. down? Is there a sort of a editor in chief, so to speak? No. Honestly, it's quite down. It is quite democratic. Like it is a bit of a majority rules. Or who has the strongest opinion? Uh -huh. None of us are like we're not that headstrong. Like we're kind of flexible people. So it's like it works. It's, it's okay. Like, it yeah. works. You know. And yeah. of course, there's conflicts, and we have differences of opinion. But you learn to pick your battles. Has anyone ever been kicked out of this? Never. 
Never. <laughs> oh my gosh. No. If we could do anything, it's just like, how can we work with our friends? Yeah. That's I the mean, best thing. That is the best thing. In some ways, coming of professional age when we did was a blessing and a curse. A curse in that everything imploded right when you know we needed to start getting salary jobs or whatever to have adult lives. But like a blessing in that yeah. we had to like create the structures and we get to choose who we want to work with. Yeah. I mean, just coming back to BB9, I'm thinking about how the structure of it really reflected the structure of any digitally active media event. So nominally it was the form of an art exhibition, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it was this diagramming. You have the narrative, you have the content, in this case, the art, you have the affiliated names, the marketing materials, and then the audience remediation and feedback. And like every level of that, Mm -hmm. you were engaging Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. And I'm so surprised that that wasn't evident to like, Maybe we could take a moment and talk about the critical response to this at that time. (laughs) And like, there were so many different things that that Biennale revealed. And I think for all present company and probably most of our listeners, it was this watershed moment to see the things we'd been thinking about reflected in this public space. Mm -hmm. But it hit a total wall of resistance among the like art establishment. I'd also like to mention that the title of it was The Present in Drag, acknowledging (laughs) the performativity of everything, including the political in the social media Mm -hmm. era. Uh, And you got very performative criticism in response, which, I mean, you really saw the beginning of what was the Donald Trump era fantasy of like (laughs) ubiquitous moral enforcing sadism and a sort of like oddest authoritarian (laughs) view of humans homogenized into distinct categories and rule sets of empathy. Um, But uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm very curious though of what you saw and felt when you read those negative reviews at the time. I don't know if Carly, that was also your... Sure, yeah, great. Well, I mean, some of them just were so... I don't even know how to explain it. Some were just cruel. Some of them were just... Some of them just... They were, first of all, I want to misnomer that they were all bad. Yeah. Just for the that's listeners. True, there true. were a yeah, lot of good yeah, reviews. Yeah. That's not the problem. The issue is that, you know, the things that people get liked and shared are oftentimes the ones that are the most like, you know, people liked, people have always loved to hate this. Right. That's yeah. not, that was yeah. just like, that was like a trope. It was I like, mean, it's, a cliche. Was it's like, a cliche, you know? You know so it's like, okay. <laughs> But when we would read these reviews and we'd be like, you really didn't get it. Like you were at the European School of Management and Technology which is in the Heidegger <laughs> building. And there's like literally like stained glass of like socialist themes. And there's just by the nature of the building, you've got the stock exchange also playing in right. front of it. <laughs> you don't know why we chose this building. Like, to install like a crypto installation. Yeah, to do a crypto installation. You're not, <laughs> you're really, really going to like, like suppress all critical thinking in order to write this review and say that we're like this like pro-capitalist maniacal <laughs> New Yorkers like that like only care about like aesthetics. Yeah. I don't know. It was just like to me it was stunning to see like the mediocrity of it all. Yeah. It wasn't surprising. Yeah. We weren't surprised. Like mm. because I mean we were very intentionally putting the audience, the subject, into the exhibition in a way that made them feel compromised and yeah. feel conflicted. Like maybe they had something to do with the world that we're in. I mean, I thought the irony of the negative reviews, they almost framed it as if you were making like a sarcastic and escapist world for the viewer to enter. But like what it made you feel was like actual reality, like what was going on in that moment. And the sort of revolutionary moralism of the reviews felt far more of an escape from what everyday reality is than anything that the 
Biennale presented. That's that's exactly right. I mean, it's like, what world do you live in that you can like look down and be like, right. no, 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 not <laughs> in an art exhibition. You can't do that right. here. You know, like, okay. I mean, but you wrote it into your press release. Like, I can't believe this is written in 2000. I mean, I can believe it was written in 2016. What I can't believe is that it's no less true in 2023, um, where you said there's nothing particularly realistic about the world today, a world in which investing in fiction is more profitable than betting on reality. So our proposition is simple. Instead of holding talks on anxiety, let's make people anxious. Rather than organizing symposia on privacy, let's jeopardize it. Let's give a body to the problems of the present, where they occur, so as to make them a matter of agency, not spectatorship. I mean, that's so clear. And so, like, Did they not read it? Did they not get the press release? (laughs) Also, as press releases go, it was, like, one of the most well-copywritten, jargon-free, like, We're not pulling any punches. We're not pulling any punches. I'll tell you what it is. I mean, I do think that this was the era where, like, previously, post-internet art and a lot of this was the strategy was over-identifying with the object of critique, exploding it, and right. kind of exaggerating it, and embodying it. And that whole tactic was under question then. And I, I kind of hope that that's over already, although maybe it's not within the art world. But I think that's why. It's like, it doesn't matter what the press release was. It was the very, it was that tactic. They were actually hoping for art to be some type of reprieve from this new fascist world that we were entering in 2016. Yeah, Right, because Trump um, was fascism in drag, right? So it was like, the problem was anything. Again, drag is the center (laughs) of a big culture war. Yeah. So Well, yeah, and it was just like, I think it was the moment when the people who called things neoliberal started calling things fascist. It was very much transition. This was on the forefront of that, always being accused of all those things, I guess, throughout. But I'm surprised you didn't read the part where we were like clutching their tote bags. Like, oh, that was really great. That was really great. That was that was after living in Berlin for two years. <laughs> I mean, that's real. One thing I did want to ask about was this relationship to subculture. As Dan said, as you said, of course, pop culture ends at the end of the aughts. Like it no longer becomes possible. And, you know, with the dissolution of legacy media, a mainstream, like a literal mainstream is no longer possible because everything's, you know, decentralized. But so if there's no pop culture or there's no mainstream, can there even be subculture? That would be one argument. But yet this did give way to so many influential threads, which arguably are attached to different kinds of subcultures. Like, what does that term mean to you? What does it mean to you now? How do you conceive of what had been subculture in the past, but just feels like some other kind of alternative thread? It's so hard now to use that word. That word feels like it's from another time. Totally. So there must be a new vocabulary. We need a new vocabulary for what happens now. (laughs) Core, I guess, but now we're post-core. But that goes back to your like homomimetic thing. Like we're just sort of like spiraling into (laughs) trend words. And and, and at that point it's an algorithm and the question becomes like, can a machine create a subculture? Yeah. Maybe. If a machine can send in for a whole demographic. Exactly. Like Then then why not? Yeah. Um, but when we started this, we were already feeling like there was no alternative, there was no outside. And it wasn't just because there was like Rihanna was like everywhere. Right. You know, it was also because we felt the pressure of capital everywhere. Yeah. There wasn't this ability to kind of like form things outside of it. I guess it really depends on how you define subculture, which I really can't define. Yeah. I, I mean, really don't. I can't. I keep hitting this dead end where you can't have a subculture if you don't have a mainstream. It's a 20th century spatial construction. There has to be 
yeah. something else. I mean, I don't know, Julian or Dan, if you have thoughts on that. I mean, Julian, I know you've been thinking a lot about TikTokification of Berlin subcultures and like how Bergheim has just become like a how-to TikTok vid. Ooh. They're just, I mean... Essentially, TikTok is just making what would be subcultures in the West operate like they've sort of always operated in Asia, where it's more of a costume or an aesthetic pack than lifestyle, pseudo-ideological commitment. I mean, the whole thing, though, that I always remind myself is that this idea of like, I don't know, subcultural authenticity and not being a poser. And like that only existed from like 1992 two to maybe like 2004 like or something. Like the strokes. Like the only <laughs> yeah. time in history, really yeah. though. Because right, you'd be like David Bowie or somebody. But, right, like, because, I mean the Ramones yeah. were wearing like platforms and sequin dresses before they became a punk band, right? It's like everyone in the 70s, like this Cambrian explosion of subcultures was just scene jumping all the time. Like it was only, it was this very late subculture phenomenon, almost this fundamentalist grasp onto mm. something that was slipping away because it was so rapidly commodified. Um, yeah, so I think... I, I have to interject because I, I was curious about this, so I looked up the etymology and poser, at least spelled in the French way, was entered English in 1869 as one who practices affected attitudes. And by the <laughs> early it's 20th like a dandy. century, poser was widespread yeah. uh, used to describe someone who pretended to be something they were not, especially someone who was superficial and trendy. So I guess this is actually hardcore all throughout the 20th century. <laughs> I think maybe we can talk about it finally being over now, but I don't actually, I think, yeah, I mean, clearly our childhood's poser was probably at its zenith as an insult, but yeah, it was more that it's finally ended. And this was actually something that was true for all of modernity, mm. that this was something that people were not into. Yeah, I guess the people who call, were calling the Ramones posers at CBGBs or whatever just kind of faded away. Into <laughs> they didn't go anywhere. Yeah. yeah, they're, they're forgotten. Uh, but actually, Dan, I wonder if you would even have a counter argument here because when I think of something like Miladies or I think of, like, for lack of a better word, subcultural energy that came up around the edges of crypto in the past year, what do you make of those kind of scenes or like network spirituality or like, you know, these well, kinds of groups? Like Subcultures what, now, yeah. if they exist, are extremely incoherent. Right, they're, they're very hard to understand well, the language and the aesthetics. Like, but they that's make always it, been a strategy in subculture, right? To like to confuse, to make mix the codes. Like, think of punk. That's like mixing like a Jamaican culture with like glam. Culture yeah, but still, and, there like, was a store. I do feel like I mean, and this is again, I'm we're overall really uh, showing our age, but I yeah. do feel like there is something about Zoomer culture that is specifically about. In, like maximizing incoherence Definitely. and that being what you're trying to optimize for, which is inherently hard to dissect or understand or analyze. It's like irreducibility. Like I see Timothy Chalamet's outfit, like camo cargo shorts, a weird sequined cardigan and a new order shirt or something. And it's like, it's, it's, it is maximal incoherence that sort of is what is appreciated the most right now. And that is unique. We were trying to, um, we're writing something for interview and we were trying to mm -hmm. describe what the fashion is. And we're like, is it glam goth? Like, not really. But then Julian's like, it's... It's abnormcore. Yeah. Abnormcore. <laughs> Maybe that gets at that kind of incoherence. Because the looks were great and they were really cute last night. There's definitely just like a blending of like it's, all I mean, I always just of, think like blender, blender, yeah, like fashion yeah. tropes yeah. in a blender. Yeah. Blender. It's, yeah. Well, it's always like, it's like actually you need 
you need to put on sneakers with that. Like even yeah. it's like a fancy outfit, you just put on sneakers. Totally. Like, you, you need to make something wrong about <laughs> Hiking it. Boots. Like make something of yeah. your outfit needs to be off now. Yeah. So whatever, it's too coherent. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So there's like a desire if it's like a mass desire for a subculture or for some kind of like way of, of like muddying the codes, which mm-hmm. is like in part what subculture was always. I mean, I about. see you see like Elon Musk's use of like image board culture. And I've heard it described as like being a white man's jive. And mm. I do see that there is an emphasis on in group language. And you see that in crypto too, where like whether or not you hyphenate on chain or not becomes <laughs> very, it indicates a lot about how much of a grifter you are. Like, and I think in situations where there's going to be a lot of you know, grifters and people who are attracted to the community for whatever reasons, there's going to be an increased emphasis on s- signifiers like. Uh, correct hyphenations and stuff like that, uh, or if you use yeah, the word blockchain, still I, there's a, there's a lot of these different things that just sort of show how much of an insider or not. And I think, yeah, that's more important than ever because it's harder to to ascertain otherwise. That's really interesting, Dan, and that actually relates to something we were speaking with the political scientist Kevin Munger last week, and he said that you know in a time of language prediction and language generation, that using language in slightly wrong or highly specific ways mm-hmm. ends up being the way to show humanity mm-hmm. or your in-group status or to show you're yeah. not a grifter. And that maybe because we are communicating so much via text that it's not as much about visual signifiers as it is about syntax. I mean, I was also thinking about how there's just an explosion of fraud right now. Like it's getting like, like wildly fraud. out of control. Yeah. yeah. And I was just thinking about, you know, I mean, they're even doing behavioral prediction now, like having AI look for patterns and like bank users, ways they access their account to see if it yeah. like appears yeah. that they're logging in under pressure or duress or something. I mean, yeah. but but I was just trying to think of like simple tests to see if the person on the other end of the line is like an actual bank employee or not. And I realized maybe one way is like, see if they get mad if you like start wasting their time a little bit or <laughs> yeah. whatever. If they start to get angry, you know it's not a real employee, right? I'm just a, a real I, employee will hang up on you and block your account. As well, I experienced last week with right, Citibank. But they won't <laughs> they won't get angry because <laughs> right. the boss is listening, right, right? right? So you see, I don't know if that's actually a good like opsec practice, but I was trying to think of these little ways of a testing if the other person on the line is a real employee or not. And maybe though that's an analogy for the way these now digital subcultures or whatever they are developing their own in-group language. True. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it is, it's notable. Yeah, the posers that we have to worry about now are bots, actually. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and Absolutely. so, yeah, so there will be a, whole, a, a lot of um, methods to determine if, if people are real or not. That's going to be a huge theme this decade. And, you know, there's lots of different ways, like behavioral analysis, text analysis, there's attempts like WorldCoin to actually, you know, like scan everybody's retinas and uh, have a connection between some biometrics and the blockchain. And it's true, probably within the next couple of years, you know, there's going to be more artificial agents creating content and chatting and, you know, just and creating stuff online. There are real people. And it's going to become more yeah. and more important too. Because it's a definable category that can also be marketed to yeah. at least teenagers or, yeah. 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 I am curious then to bring it back to disc for a second. 
How has this evaded recuperation all these years? Yeah, I mean, I think we've always skirted that. I mean, we've really been in parallel with, you know, the art world, with technology, with fashion, yeah. with hot, like even like entertainment or this or that. So maybe it's because, you know, what we choose to talk about is like never like quite decipherable enough to be like, we can make money off of the right. you know what right, I mean? right, right. <laughs> Like it's just like, well. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was wondering about that just because there are so many different distribution methods that you guys have explored over the years. And I know you did at one point have like a Hollywood agent and we're trying to pursue, you know, the traditional Hollywood route. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like obviously that would require a lot of compromises. And then I also see, you know, this is David and Solomon, not you personally, mm -hmm. but Torso. And there seems to be a lot of product market fit for Torso within mm -hmm. fashion. Like sure. it's the right level of incoherence for fashion. Yeah. So I'm just wondering like how much you think about the venue and if you still have goals to try to like do something fully mainstream or if you're kind of happy to have the freedom to to not be. No, I think 100%. I mean, in the same way that it's hard to sell a collective to an art collector, Mm -hmm. yeah. or a, or even to a biennial or yeah. to a whoever. It's hard to sell a collective. It's hard to sell to a commercial client, which is, I mean, David and Solomon doing Torso, it's like so amazing. Like it makes sense. A duo, that's, we get we get the duo. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like it mm -hmm. really, really works. And it's like really amazing. But a collective wasn't going to like, people are like, who am I going to talk to? I don't understand. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So it's going to be a challenge. But like, I mean, we absolutely do maintain a goal of like, you know, we want everything but the world to be a series. We want to write the season. We want to get that on like HBO Amazing. or Apple or whatever. Yeah. Like we want yeah. to have a mass yeah. audience. Like we're not in it for the niche status. Like that's yeah. not like actually like the end goal. <laughs> so, you know, everyone pray and manifest with us. <laughs> that like that like <laughs> does that does happen, but it will be an interesting challenge once again to pitch like this community of creators right. to make a TV show, you know? You would think that that would be more palatable these days and right. ever. And, you know, in the days of, like, people trying to adapt Twitter threads into, you know, movies and stuff like that, that people would be open to that. But I guess auteurship is still an easier bet. It's the same thing even with the startup world. A strong founder or a team of two is easy. A team of four or five, that becomes more muddy. Yeah. So, Can you tell us a little bit about if Everything But the World becomes a TV show? What's your pitch for it? So we've now seen the film at Schinkel, which is the pilot. What would we expect if we were to see it in a series format? And maybe also just for people listening who haven't seen it. It's a docu-sci-fi series, which I love. Or that's what you know, that's how, how we described. called it. That's what we called it. Yeah. So we made this film and it was like all about kind of like collapsing time and space and knowledge and like attack on like notions of progress and property. And we had this theme. It was like the castle that kind of like ran throughout it as the kind of you know, indicator of like what it is to be human. And all these questions came up. But the through line was this podcaster, <laughs> a surprise, like, you know, who is essentially just trying to like wrestle with all of these ideas in our head. And it's a really cool work because like at the end, like, I mean, I really identify with her. Yeah, and this like, is played by Layla. This is played by Leela Weinrob, yes. I really identify with this character because at the end she's like, why are you mad? Why are you mad? And you're like, yeah, why? Don't understand this world that we yeah, live in. You know, yeah, like there's yeah. this like climax of frustration in both having access to so much information, but being so consumed and confused and like, yeah. and also knowing that like these stories that are told and retold and told again aren't reality. And what we perceive as being real, it's like, 
you know, I don't know why we point fingers and laugh at QAnon people. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, well, here we are, like, believing in, like, all the speculative garbage on, like, finance, whatever. You yeah. know, it's, it's, these are all fictions. It's just a matter of, like, how many people are going to collaborate in them. I mean. And believe them. So yeah. that's, like, the art film. But the TV pitch is going to be, like, a bit more Seinfeld, Frasier, George Carlin. Like, you okay. know, like, where, like, Leela has a life, uh, a character. Uh-huh her real life seeps into the podcast. Right, so in right. that way, like we are really like pivoting and trying to make it more mainstream. You know? Right. I mean, I imagine that more episodes that follow the same format of everything but the world would be really entertaining regardless to a mainstream audience, except there's no way to market something like that. Mm. Like, how do you describe it? There's not an existing category or trope. You're asking people to kind of dive into something unknown, which is why I think you always need some kind of genre or narrative vehicle to, to wrap the deep thinking, I guess. Right, because right. everything that's made is like, a, you pitch it as like X meets Y, you know? <laughs> right. And maybe if you're lucky, say with a twist of Z, you know? But <laughs> what if it's like Adam Curtis meets Seinfeld? Like, like that's pretty. It's like, that's pretty good. It's, it's like that's <laughs> how I'm seeing it. Like it's like it's a dark comedy. Yeah, I feel like we have just done the greatest market testing. We were, you know, shown in LA. We did it in New York. Oh, you yeah, know, we sold out, sold out, whatever. You know, like there's an audience. There's like, an audience. There's an audience for this. These subjects are things that people are thinking about. They're like yeah. literally staying up at night, like thinking about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. One of the things I appreciate about everything but the world is that. It doesn't talk down to the viewer. It sort of uses, just as this always has, it uses the general vernacular. It, I mean, also not to make it seem like it's for kids, but like Sesame Street did this back in the 70s, where it like sort of knew- it did feel, I had a Sesame Street vibe from it, for sure. It's just meets people where they are, which I think is effective. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one change since 2023 is officially the start of the 20s. I think we are going to start to see a refocusing on scale appropriate issues that humanity is facing. Uh, we are in yeah. this social media driven holographic period where not only time was warped, but our sense of scale was totally flattened. And I've been seeing sort of a fuzzy macro trend emerge that's on a level above the culture war and above most of the political divisions that's about animating the problems that we face on a civilizational or species level Mm -hmm. scale. And I think this does that extremely effectively. Uh, I wonder if you feel like this fits into the thinking this has always had, or do you feel like this film plants a flag in some new territory you're going to explore? I think think it plants a flag. I think we're older now. It's a different world. You know, if I thought it was like really like the same, I don't know if I'd be doing it. I will say this. All of the things that we're talking about in it, I feel like we have been talking about for a long, long time. But our approach is a little bit refined. Right. I mean, you said something interesting at the opening, because I think I asked you, I'm like, what feels different between 2016 and 2023? And you were like, well, theoretically, we're exploring a lot of the same concepts. We're using a lot of the same language. But the environment has changed. And because of this collapse of time and this collapse of media, there's kind of no way to easily depict it or in 20 years to explain to somebody, maybe it will become clearer in hindsight, but at this moment, how do you show the difference between 2016 and 2023? Yeah. like It's like a soup or something. Yeah. It's like the broth is different, but all the ingredients are the same. Yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> same stuff inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that term that I'm obsessed with, derangement of scale. And I'm like, yes, yeah. that's 
also this gap between like you as an individual and like the world and like your mm-hmm. influence and impact and non-impact. Like, we can't like, we comprehend just can't, it. We can't. Yeah. You know. But yeah, just this idea of scale. Like we're not adapted. We're all suffering from this. Humans like literally do not understand large numbers. No. Yeah. Like we just don't yeah. get them. Like yeah. after a thousand, we're it's over. Yeah. We're like what? Like <laughs> it's true. You know? and, it's true. And, and emotionally, we can't calibrate to them either. No. Right. There's a very narrow feel- range of emotional response. Here, one person dies, it's very sad. Two people dies, you're like, that's very sad. 200 people dies, you can't be 100 Half, times yeah. more sad. It yeah, doesn't yeah. work that way. Biologically, evolutionally, like, yeah. We don't we have this no, not They don't have the capacity But I mean, in it. so many ways, we are not evolved to be in the position we're in, right. in the world. Yeah, that's also true. And, yeah. and it's like, okay, like, so sharks are older than trees. <laughs> and, you Wait, know, is it true? Yeah, and older than dinosaurs. Mm. And Flowers. like wow. the T-Rex, like the dis- difference between us and the last T-Rex and T-Rex and the last Stegosaurus is is like their the difference between T-Rex and Stegosaurus is larger than us yeah. and the wow. last T-Rex. So like wow. we are really young and like we really just jumped the food chain in this way that's like Cleopatra is closer to the moon landing than the construction of the pyramids. I mean it works on all sorts of It works on all sorts of <laughs> ways where you stop it's topsy turvy man like how yeah. did this happen? Everything you know? feels like, unreal. Yeah. Carly said something that blew me away the other day and I was just <laughs> talking about I don't know the Delusion of metaverse or something like I can't believe how these like massive, massive things that you know are absolutely untrue or will never become the norm or something. Or the aggregation of capital on the crypto this, markets or something. Like people basically lie to themselves without knowing it just due to crowd dynamics, right? And I was talking to Carly about these kinds of mass hypnosis that occurs without really even being directed by a single entity. And I was like, how can this be happening? And how do people not realize? realize this happens. And Carly says, well, just think of how much we delude ourselves to just be able to live normal life. Like yeah. the threats that we're facing, the state of the world, like the nuclear bombs that are just sitting there in silos, like protected by a computer from the 80s. Like, <laughs> right? The amount of things we have to delude ourselves just to function in our mundane lives. Like, of course, it's very easy to just like believe whatever. Right. Hype. We're just primed to accept some of these myths just in order to function. I yeah. think it's maybe an exercise to be aware of these bigger scale Truths, you know. Julian's Maybe gonna start like raising chickens. Oh, yeah, yeah slaughter our own That's poultry. That's my and- idea. My creative <laughs> producer to rural pipeline idea was that we would raise organic, healthy, and happy pigs without immune systems to grow human <laughs> organs inside of for That's transplants. That's your Cronenberg fantasy. No, that's a real future and. I think we could be innovators <laughs> in that one, field. Okay. <laughs> I mean, one question I have for you, Lauren, is you're also a mother of two kids who, you know, they have the capacity to start to think about some of these big things. Are there any frameworks that you and Marco have found to be particularly helpful? And do, do your kids even have questions about these things? I'm definitely of the radical honesty parenting yeah. style, but they haven't asked me questions about new media, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for them, they're just like, they want to watch YouTube. They talk about TikTok. How do you deal with digital media? Everyone wants to hear about my family's <laughs> you don't have to screen say time. Or, but I'm, I am curious. I think Policy. there are a lot of parents also in our Discord of like kids who okay. have this question and who better 
better to ask than, you know, like the mother of this. Listen, <laughs> they're not deprived. They play video games on the weekends. They don't have their own iPads. They don't have phones. They can't scroll or search. They don't have those tools. A lot of their friends, like they have friends with phones and some people have like unlimited screen time as a philosophy huh. because they think like, hey, like the, this is the world we live in. Huh. They see me on the phone. Like, why not them? I'm like, no, like you can be bored. I'm very happy with you being bored right now. Yeah, I have. I heard this anecdote recently about somebody who had hired some Zoomer software engineers and they didn't understand how file systems work. The the files go into folders or (laughs) because everything was just app based. So I do wonder if it's important to expose certain types of screens, like the fact that screen time has become just a term for any type of screen use is dangerous because yeah. there's definitely productive uses of screens and lazy uses. So I totally, don't know. Marco, it's amazing. He downloaded software that they can like replicate like any game. Oh wow! So like they they play oh, like they play the like all these yeah. games from the eighties and the nineties. Oh, cool. Like that's like, it's like <laughs> Street Fighter and yeah. Donkey Kong. Yeah. And, like, yeah, but not so much Roblox, Roblox because those things are like I do those, think that yeah you get less dopamine yeah, overload from 100%. like a sixteen bit game probably. There's just something in the, we all know this, I mean, the design of these games is just like everything else. It's meant to be addictive. They get just as much satisfaction playing, you know, Pokemon. Yeah. Then they don't need that. When are they going to watch kids? They have to discover that themselves. (laughs) That is the lamest thing ever. Your mom's like, come on, let's watch kids. (laughs) That would be a very uncomfortable family viewing. Here's how to be a teenager (laughs) in New York. Oh my gosh. I don't know, Dan, if you had any other bigger questions. Not big ones, no. We can quickly acknowledge how funny post-net art was called post-net as if it was after something. <laughs> no, that it just happened. meant that it was after no, in the, like, the of, onset in the of the internet. Of the internet. But it is funny because like the whatever art that emerged in the 2016 till 2021 moment was actually post-internet and kind of pretending that the internet stopped existing. So that did become the uh, the theme, I think, after post-internet. Dan, do you remember when there was this kind of like moment where we didn't know if it was going to be called post-internet or the new aesthetic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the new aesthetic, you, I guess, did that catch on? Do you remember anyway? that? I, it I didn't, didn't catch on. I felt like that, it was coming from London. Am I wrong? That, was, well, that ended up being more just like pixelated architecture, I guess. I still I guess. hear called the new aesthetic, <laughs> but pretty distinct from whatever the post-internet. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't catch, didn't catch on. on. No. Yeah. Lauren, are there any Zoomers who you see as some kind of spiritual successor to the DISC project? <laughs> um, I'm sure there are. Putting me on the spot. But I do think that like the do not research thing is like, yeah. so like, if we were younger, if we started now, like that's kind of what we would have probably been doing. Like that kind of collaborative, like right. know, group think. But I know Josh isn't a Zoomer. But the, I think there are many of them yeah, are Zoomers. Exactly. And I think Definitely. It has the same kind of spirit. We're not about individual subjectivity. And it seems like there's Blade Study, the gallery that mm-hmm. is run by the person who coded that site. And of course, there's like the Romelia and like edgelordy Zoomers who are, I don't know, going on a blitz through ideology and tradition and the future all at once. And I don't know where it'll settle. It's like a big machine that's kind of crunching everything. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually it might land on something cohesive, but we're not there yet. I think they're still like that's fine. At Just the that's moment. fine. Yeah. It doesn't have to settle. I wonder when you think back about all the million things that you've produced. Are there any disc projects or disc magazine articles that you're like, oh, I think about this all the time? Because like, 
I think of shoes and shoes all the time. I like. I was going to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every time I put on my Crocs, I'm like I shoes and shoes. Bring that up. Yeah. I'm like literally working on the shoes and shoes project right now. No, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll show you some later. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely. I mean, that's like super iconic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it had like the best reactions from people too. It's like Martha Rosler was like, some people. I remember that too. Remember that? Yeah. Some people make revolutions yeah. and some people wear four shoes at once. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was just like was really the queen of Facebook has spoken. <laughs> no, I mean, I really think like, I mean, that had the most impact on visual culture uh, of any photo essay that I can think yeah. of. I mean, the that's uncanny. what sneakers look like. Yeah, yeah, For yeah. sure. I think How to Hide from Machines comes up a lot. Uh-huh. Like he surveillance. Tell people what that is. It was a visual essay with Adam Harvey, a technologist who was studying surveillance and facial recognition and how everything is going to be equipped with like, you know, like a detection yeah. now, which right, it, is. it is. And and this was 2011 or something. So and he was like, oh, but if you wear makeup that looks like this, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like this, like the opposite of contouring. You put like black streaks on your, so on your cheek. Or one like, dazzle. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like totally funny. So we did like a photo shoot where we're like using hair to cover people's faces. Yeah. It was like a beauty editorial, but right. then like mixed with all this Tumblr imagery. And yeah. I think about that one a lot. I've seen that referenced or replicated many times. I mean, it also is funny because that method does not work anymore. No. Which is, uh, whereas shoes and shoes still works. Yeah. There's something timeless about that. But with like 3D cameras, the dazzle makeup doesn't work anymore. So I wonder if shoes and shoes, though, changes your gait enough where gait recognition <laughs> Exactly. There you go. Track you. I also think about like Ryan Turkarton. He did this like an editorial for W Magazine, which was like amazing. He had yeah. like Veronica and Telfar and Ashland and Lizzie Fitch and he like styled them and made the craziest editorial, the best editorial I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And then we published the references behind oh, it and like nice. how it all came together. Yeah, that was one of my favorites because I feel like that really defined like how we were all looking at combining images and creating new genres. And that was like very pivotal. Yeah, totally. I mean, I do like how the editorial in this magazine it was polished and like high production value. Why does anyone say that? Like, I never understand. Like, take a closer look, people. Well, but like, you're constantly showing the seams or the structures behind things, or just like with the Biennale, you know, you sort of you saw how any of these media events are made. I mean, I feel like this set out to challenge the entrenched forms of institutional critique, and it did that by like showing, okay, but these are the new frames, and we're revealing them to you. I think it looks high production, but maybe I don't have a very trained eye. <laughs> Does the W magazine spread is, yeah, I mean, I remember all of those yeah. images. Absolutely. I guess there was an interview around the time of BB9 where you mentioned you were really thinking about the end of the contemporary and it's true. But that term in the aughts also stood in for like a certain aesthetic. Like mm-hmm. contemporary didn't just mean the now. It was like contemporary art meant it was attached to a particular kind of discourse in a particular generation. And then it got stale. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, it had to be retired. We had to use glossy, we had to use glossy paper yeah. for our catalog. <laughs> yes. Super important. Well, do we have more questions? Or what should do you we... think about AI? <laughs> 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 um, excited to work for it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope they're a good boss. <laughs> oh, I remember one more question. Someone mentioned this as being kind of an alternate institution. And of course, we've talked about this and Joshua Citarella has talked about this para like pseudo para-institution or pseudo-institution. And I wonder if there was ever an opportunity for 
this to be actually formalized into the thing we commonly consider an institution. I mean, I don't know how that actually like happens. I guess it just means like a lot of money, but was that ever <laughs> proposed in any way? And you said, no, I mean. No, not that I can recall. I mean, not like, hey, like you guys should be like, yeah, here's this money and I just want to give it to you. That's never been blessed. Make an institution? No. You know, the thing is, it's like, we kind of did pivot in the way where we're like, all right, well, like, since they're going to talk about this in art schools, like, why don't we just, like, create a platform and, like, have schools subscribe to it? Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Dis.art. Yeah, exactly. And continue to, like, make films and produce things about things we're interested in and sell it to, like, the universities and libraries and wherever. So, in that sense, I think that's where we found, like, a happy medium, I Uh guess, and, like, a compromise where it's, like, we have full independence. But there is institutional support for what we do. Right. And then does that also mean that DIS's work will be archived somehow? Or like, how will that work? Well, I actually really worry about DIS magazine. Yeah. We need someone to help us. (laughs) Like, like, yeah, I'm I'm looking for someone that really knows WordPress. But it's really on us because it's like we have like a thousand hard drives and it's old. These things don't last forever. People think about like everything is lasting forever on the internet, but it falls apart. And it's like without real caretaking and maintenance, like everything you make is like destined to disappear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to like see someone help us, but it's on us because it's like we've got hard drives distributed between like, you know, four different people, maybe Mm -hmm. more, maybe five, six. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Right, right, right. I remember you doing a piece on data obesity Mm -hmm. sometime around... 2014 or yep. something. And mm-hmm. that that term has stuck with me. And I was haunted on one hand by the bajillion photos I have in my archive, knowing that I'll never go through all those. Yeah, And that's just a personal situation. But like three years is about the shelf life of like any digital piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe even less before mm-hmm. you start to get some kind of digital rot. So yeah, help DIS if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> you know how to reach them. Well, that's, that was my last question. Cool. So everything but the world, it's in Berlin now at Schinkel Pavilion. It's up for the next month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put mm-hmm. the dates in the show notes. Is there anything else that's coming up in the coming months or are there other places where people can view the film? Um, I think it's going to go to Malta soon. So if you live in Malta. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. No, it's moving around. I mean, I, I'm sure, I think Hong Kong. During Art Basel, maybe. Cool. Hong Kong. I think it's going to be seen in London in March, too. Where? I think we're going to go to theater. Great. Yeah. We're going to do a theater for that one. Great. Well, Lauren Boyle, thank you so much for sharing all this lore and all these new thoughts with us. Really such a pleasure to have you here. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Deutschland. Thank you, Carly. Thank you, Julian. Dan, it's so good to see you guys. (laughs) All right. right. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast, and thank you, Lauren Boyle, for joining us on this episode. Dis's film installation, Everything But the World, is on view at the Schinkel Pavilion in Berlin through February 26th. You can follow at D-I-S Dis on Instagram and or head to our show notes for all relevant links. Is there a Dis work stuck in your mind? Did the Dis sphere influence your practice in a significant way? Let us know in the comments or share with the community in the podcast channel of our Discord. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more from the front lines of the post-digital turn, boost us in the algos, like, share, rate, subscribe, and or leave a review wherever you access the New Models stream. Thank you and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. Intro clip from Everything But The Girl, Blame, J-Magic VIP Remix. 
For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.